Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Like, it just drives me friggin' crazy that I can't go out and play baseball and watch baseball. That's Ben White, Politico's chief economic correspondent. Been watching on ESPN, like, whatever old stuff they'll show. I was watching old college gymnastic meets the other day. Like, anything involving, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, one team competing against another, if it's on the television, I will watch it. The other day, I think, like, Holland was playing Spain in, in women's handball. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I was flipping that. past, and I was like, you know, I do not know the outcome of this game. I, I will do watch. not know what's going to happen. Exactly. And so, so I watched it. In a way, we're getting introduced to things that we wouldn't otherwise ever have known too much about, unless you are a women's handball aficionado. I am now. You are now, exactly. Um, and I've learned a lot about, like, the triple Lutz. A beautiful made it. triple Lutz. But that's besides the point. Welcome to Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. And today on Nerdcast, the huge actions and programs the government is spinning up to combat coronavirus and aid the economy, and how none of it is close to enough. The U.S. economy is basically at a standstill. And we want to know not just when, when it will reopen, but how and what that will look like, and, and basically whether we're headed for another massive long-term economic depression. And so Ben White is here to give me an idea. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the question that every economist is debating right now, is how quickly can the economy bounce back from a shock like this? Unprecedented, 22 million jobs lost, the economy grinding to such a, a rapid halt. You know, there's a scenario that you can paint that's optimistic that says, you know, we get control of the virus by midsummer. You know, we have enough testing and tracing in place and most of the economy can reopen. So we get absolutely god-awful jobs numbers for two months and a drop in economic growth of 40%. And then we pretty quickly bounce right back. Um, I don't happen to buy into that argument. I don't think we're going to go into a long, deep recession or a Great Depression scenario because, you know, the economy was pretty decent before this started. It wasn't the best ever, as Trump likes to say all the time, but it was fine. And we had very low unemployment. Uh, and companies that survive uh, who have furloughed people will bring them back because there'll be opportunities to make money and we'll see a recovery. But I think it's just going to take a while in certain industries, certain areas, and for people's behaviors to change. I mean, we've all been subject to just an incredibly remarkable, dramatic change in the way we live our lives in the blink of an eye and scared to death about a deadly virus. And that you just don't get over in a week or even a month. I mean, it's going to be a few months. So I think it's not until at least next year that you see the unemployment rate get back under 10% and the economy start to return to something close to normal. And then the dark side scenario is we get snapbacks in the fall and a second wave of this and people who thought they had immunity don't have immunity. That's when you get into the discussions of prolonged recession and depression. God willing, that doesn't happen, but it's a possibility. Yikes. 
Sorry. Right. I, I don't mean to be this depressing. <laughs> like, you know, there are like I do spend some of my time living in hope and believing in, you know, it's something close to the V-shaped recovery that a lot of optimistic economists talk about. I do think it's it's possible that we get there because there's no fundamental problem with this economy like there was in the Great Recession, you had this massive housing bubble burst and household balance sheets, you know, went into the garbage, people's home values dropped precipitously, all those mortgage defaults. That was a structural problem that took years to get out of. Now, we have other structural problems. We have economic inequality. We have other things that need to be addressed, but we don't have like big bubbles that burst that take years to recover from. So theoretically, this should be one that we could bounce back from relatively quickly. It just depends on getting the public health side right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, mi- mixing in a little bit of hope with uh, uh, everything else is probably a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I do try to do that. I don't want to be Dr. Doom. I'm not Dr. Doom and Gloom. Um, you know, it's bad now. You know, it's going to look bad for a couple of months. We're going to get numbers that are going to you know, scare the pants off of everybody. You know, when you see the April jobs report in May, it's going to be hard to believe, uh, you know, that we lost 20 million jobs and the unemployment rate went literally from the lowest it's ever been to perhaps the highest it's ever been. That's possible, or at least close to 24.9%, which was the high in the Great Depression. We could threaten that number. But The hopeful side of that is that will be short-lived. We're not staying there. That will go down. I don't know how fast, but there are a lot of folks who will get those jobs back that they were furloughed from or laid off from. It won't happen right away, but it will happen. Yeah. So uh, speaking of disasters, um, you've been an economics reporter for a while, Ben. Have you you ever seen anything even remotely like the situation that we're now in? No, absolutely not. I mean, I've seen the 2008-2009 financial crisis, which is the closest... We've come to it, and that was really, really scary and really, really bad. But we did not lose 22 million jobs in the course of a month. You know, the banking system almost crashed, and and that was bad, and we had a recession that came out of it. Uh, But we did not also have a global pandemic that was killing people and an economy that basically ground to a complete halt uh, in a very short period of time. So there's really absolutely no precedent for it. The, The Great Depression doesn't even compare uh, in terms of the speed at which this has happened. Yeah, you know, there was a sentence in the piece that you wrote this week that induced a lot of anxiety when I was reading it. And it was, the global coronavirus crisis crashed into the United States in Washington state in January and quickly brought the richest and most powerful nation in the history of the world to its knees. Well, that's exactly what it did in an astonishing, rapid way. And as you say, we have done a lot. I, I don't want to give the impression that the federal government has not acted uh, in the face of this. I mean, we're up to three trillion or so in spending, which is, you know, a lot and and good. And a lot of it is going to the right places in terms of small business and checks to individuals. But, you know, when you have a stoppage of this magnitude, uh, that's not going to be enough. And the real big shortcomings are obviously on the public health front. And most economists you talk to will say, you can't get the economy back until you deal with the virus spread and people feel safe and comfortable. Uh, And, you know, we're doing 1 million tests a week. If that, uh, some people say we need 30 million uh, tests a week or more uh, to make people feel comfortable. We're going to need to do track and trace of the virus to get people out and about in the economy again, which could take 100,000 or more workers to do that work. Uh, We've got about 2,000, so we're massively short uh, on both those fronts. 
Uh, and on the economic spending front, the small business money runs out fast. The latest batch of it could run out in like two days. Uh, so we're going to need to come back and do more of this. And there's plenty of other stuff on hospital spending, testing spending, trace and track spending, areas that we just have not put enough money into, even though $3 trillion sounds like an insane amount of money, and it is. Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the figures, you know, the small business loans that you just mentioned there, and, and it looks, you know, there's continues to be work on a deal to, to make more of that money available. But I, I think the the figures you cited in your piece said basically even once that gets done, it's still only about two thirds of what what people estimate we would need, which is about a trillion dollars. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what most of the small business groups and even the banks have been saying. The loan demand is you know easily a trillion dollars, and now with this latest uh, piece, we're up at about six hundred and seventy billion. So you know we're getting there, but we're still going to lose a lot of small businesses. And one of the problems, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the rollout of the small business loan program. But one is is the money really getting to the actual small businesses? You know, mom and pop shops, barber shops, salons. Uh, that need it the most and have no cash on hand to you know continue to do business, um, or is it going to you know somewhat larger um, businesses that uh, you know might have a little bit less need for it? It's hard to design these programs. It's hard to do them right. But we're going to have whatever we do a lot more small business failures between now and reopening, and uh, the jobs numbers are going to look terrible for quite a while. Yeah. And what about what about the other end of that? The the unemployment benefits. You just talked about the stuff going to businesses, but what about the stuff going to workers? Yeah, we've done a decent job on that. I mean, we did basically make the biggest expansion in unemployment benefits that we've ever done, you know, an extra $600 in a lot of places, you know, that matches uh, people's uh, income before they lost their jobs. The duration you can get benefits is longer. Uh, so that's all good, but these are all temporary measures. Uh, unemployment runs out. It's not permanent, and there's no guarantee that people are going to quickly get all these jobs back. So we'll run into another problem there for sure. And it just shows you know, how different the United States is set up than some of our European counterparts, which simply pay everybody's wages who's been um, you know, laid off or furloughed or whatever for a considerable period of time, you know, Germany and elsewhere, uh, do that way differently than we do. Um, so we've beefed up our safety net for sure. Uh, we've beefed up unemployment benefits in important ways. Um, but there's no question in my mind that we're going to need to do more on that front. Yeah, you anticipated my next question, actually, which was about, about what other nations uh, are, are trying to do about this, Germany and, and some other countries. In, in your piece. And it strikes me that the part of the issue is it's not just, uh, you know, on the amounts that the, the federal government has decided to make available here, but it's about the systems to actually get the money out. I mean, it, it's ultimately too complicated to, to set up all in one shot, but, but the U.S. Di- didn't come into this crisis with the systems to, to help manage it economically. Precisely. I mean, we don't have the same kind of pipelines to get money directly to people like some of the um, you know heavier social welfare states in Europe do because um, they've done it forever and they're good at it and they can get money to people who need it quickly and we don't have that the unemployment system is state based it's cumbersome uh, many of the states have been completely overwhelmed by the number of claims uh, so that slowed down the process uh, obviously the direct stimulus checks going to Americans have been slowed down a bit, partly by Trump needing to have a signature on them, but that was just a couple of days. But they also need to get direct deposit for everybody who doesn't have it. They don't want to send out too many paper checks. Uh, so that process is slower 
than anybody would like it to be, um, and the whole unemployment system being uh, state-based and not federalized uh, makes it longer and harder and more complicated and leaves a lot of people frustrated. Um, and if you you know see all the images of people waiting on lines at food pantries and stuff like that, these are people that should be getting unemployment uh, benefits, but maybe haven't been able to apply or haven't had their applications processed yet. Uh, and you don't see that as much in European countries where they have things set up to, you know, immediately replace incomes for people who lose their jobs. And, you know, I, th- I think like another kind of reasonable metaphor in terms of the the scale of this as a disaster and the scale of the response required is is like World War II, right? But but again, like none of the systems or or historical lessons from dealing with that sort of thing really apply to that. You, I mean, it, we are literally taking people out of factories instead of trying to put them in, right? And and none of the you know just a lot of the systems aren't made for this, right? And you know, World War II wound up being a giant economic stimulus for the United States. I mean. Economists differ on what ended the Great Depression, and a lot of things did, but that was certainly part of it, the massive mobilization of the U.S. federal government to uh, build warships and planes and all the other hardware needed to fight the war in Europe uh, was certainly a a benefit to the economy and GDP shot up. Uh, I mean, this was something that, you know, we didn't at the moment uh, know exactly how to do, but we were aware of how you build fighter planes and how you build uh, destroyers and all the things necessary for war. Uh, So we were set up to do that. We did it, stimulated the economy, and we grew out of the Great Depression. Now, you can argue that in this situation, we should have been much better prepared for a pandemic like this since the warnings have been out there for quite a long time and other administrations have tried to set up systems under which you, you fight it. But we simply were not at all prepared, either on the public health front uh, or on the economic front, to meet this crisis uh, in any significant way. We've been too slow, we've been too small, uh, and we need to get a lot bigger and a lot faster. And then, Ben, you know, at the, at the bottom of your story, you talked about one basically big problem that's layered over all of these kind of individual areas where the government response, big as it is, might be falling short. And that's just... I mean, basically the, the breakdown of of civic life in America, right? And that, that there is certainly not as much national unity around what to do about this, certainly as there could be, but, you know, certainly as we've seen in response to things like the beginning of World War II, other kind of major historical events in the past. And you, you talked to a historian who identified that as maybe kind of the key problem just layering over everything. Yeah, it was Douglas Brinkley uh, who put it well in the story. And I think it's one of the most depressing parts of all of this, at least to me, is how it's just turned into another bitter partisan political fight, you know, between red state governors and Trump supporters and Democrats. Like the fact that, you know, Congress fought for a couple of weeks over um, adding money to the small business program was ridiculous. There was absolutely no reason to do that. Um, No reason really Republicans should have resisted the other things that Democrats wanted to spend money on because we're going to have to do it anyway. Uh, But they fought because that's what we do um, now. We we fight political fights for the sake of fighting them. Um, And, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around in this process, and Trump didn't start it. Uh, certainly, we've been polarized for a while, but uh, the Trump era has been, you know, as bitterly polarized as we've ever been. And there's really no shared um, sphere where we all live and can kind of, you know, share information. Anybody who wants can c- cocoon themselves in their own 
information zone where either Trump is doing a fantastic job fighting this or he's doing a terribly awful job fighting it. Uh, and now we have you know all these protests, which you don't want to overestimate because they're relatively small. Uh, and most people, you know, 60 percent or so favor kind of being cautious in the reopening. But now you know, you've got governors sort of falling all over themselves to please the president and reopen before maybe it's safe to do so. Georgia being the obvious example. Um, but it's just a mess. It's a depressing mess uh, where, you know, you should have something like, you know, the World War II era or even, you know, a period right after 9-11 where you had a lot of national unity, support for uh, a president doing his best um, and everybody kind of pulling in the same direction uh, to beat the virus and get the economy started again. Instead, we're just bashing each other's brains in and fighting like we do over everything else, which just makes me, you know, physically sick sometimes. Yeah, that's one thing I wonder about where, like, you know, how this event is going to kind of shape the the people who lived through it and and future generations in the way that that 9/11 or World War II or the Great Depression or so on and you know there's there's kind of a, a funny side to it of like what what are you know what are our grandchildren what's that funny thing that we're going to be doing that our grandchildren are going to be like why why is grandpa acting so why are you standing 6 feet away from me you know well hey ben thanks so much for offering us your expertise and thanks also for uh, helping fill in everyone. Ben's going to be helping fill in here on the Nerdcast feed for a little while while I'm out on paternity leave soon. I'm looking forward to that. I'm as nerdy as they get. So uh, I'll <laughs> thank, fit, I'll thank fit you right a few in. times over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank <laughs> you for having me. Uh, looking forward to guest hosting and always good to be with you. All right. And real quick, before we let you go this week, we're going to run through a few big political stories that we were tracking. It's the Nerdcast. doesn't get more nerdy than campaign finance reports. And I was very interested to see this week that Joe Biden raised a whopping $46.7 million in March. And that's not only his best fundraising month, but the best fundraising month any candidate has had this presidential election, even besting President Donald Trump. Now, Biden drew a ton of momentum out of his victories in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday, drawing in online donors like never before. And that's critical because Biden's campaign and the DNC are starting the general election hundreds of millions of dollars behind Trump and the RNC, even though they outraised the Republicans in this one month in March. So the big question going forward is, can Biden sustain this growth? Because he raised about $33 million in the first half of the month, and then less than half of that in the second half of March, as coronavirus began to shut down the country, shut down a lot of traditional campaign events, people losing jobs, everything. So that's going to be a really interesting data point to watch going forward. The next campaign filings covering this month will come by May 20th, so keep an eye out for those in about a month's time. And speaking of how much money Biden is raising, uh, we're seeing some scrutiny on how he's spending it as well. My colleague Alex Thompson had a story this week about deliberations within Biden's campaign over whether to hire Mike Bloomberg's digital politics firm. It's called Hawkfish. And the campaign going forward is going to be even more digital focused than anyone would have imagined last year. So how they go about doing it is obviously an important decision. Uh, but this one has opened some fault lines within the campaign about everything from Bloomberg's role in the Democratic Party to Biden's attempts to make peace with the left to even longstanding concerns about the role of consulting firms in big political campaigns. So we'll be watching that space. It's going to be really interesting what Biden decides to do there. And by the way, the campaign filings also gave us a final tally on Bloomberg's own campaign spending, over $1 billion, or more than $17 million per delegate. Who among us hasn't splurged on a big online purchase that hasn't worked out, right? 
All right. And that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amond. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. I'll be out for the next few weeks on paternity leave, but we have a bunch of great guest hosts lined up. So I'll see you soon, and thanks for listening.